0: Hi and welcome to Terad.2's Climate Podcast. I'm Kiti Munyan, your host. This year, we start with a big bang with the launch of our course, The New Hydrogen Economy. The course is four weeks long, covers technology, economics, and policies of hydrogen and its role in a clean energy future. Starting Jan 25th, apply now. We're doing things a bit differently with our podcast this year. We have a special guest host, Sean Drost, who's going to be leading the charge, so to speak. Sean is a founder of Diversified Hydrogen, a sustainability-focused industrial gas company. He is also the Education Lead for our H2 program to help others learn about this area of intense recent development. He is also a proud graduate of Trinidador 2's first cohort of fellows. Our first guest of the year, Prasanna Kuluru, is a Director of Corporate Strategy at Future Proof Shipping, (FPS), a Netherlands-based company that provides Zero emissions marine transportation services to enable players across the value chain to make the energy transition in shipping. At FPS, Prasanna is responsible for maintaining a strategic overview of alternative fuels and zero emissions technology markets, assessing technologies on their commercial, technical, operational, and financial viability, and enabling holistic decision making on a choice of technology or solution for zero emission vessels. Prasanna holds an MBA from the Rotterdam School of Management and a bachelor's degree in design from NIFT. Over to you, Sean.
1: Thank you, Kirti. I'm here with Prasanna. How are you today?
2: I'm good, thank you, and you?
1: Oh, I'm doing good. Thank you for joining me, I appreciate it. I'd love to hear a little bit about Future Proof Shipping and your role at the company.
2: So, Futureproof Shipping offers zero emissions marine transportation services to enable players across the value chain to make the energy transition in the shipping industry. We're based in Rotterdam in the Netherlands, and our marine transportation services essentially include two main things. Being a zero-emissions vessel owner, we are building our own fleet of zero-emissions inland and short sea vessels, which we offer to cargo owners for charter. Our ultimate goal is to have zero-emissions ocean-going vessels in our fleet. And in the process of building our own fleet, we're gaining a lot of knowledge On zero emissions technologies and fuels. So, we also do some advisory work where we enable others to make this transition by supporting them on technical, financial, and commercial aspects, as well as project development and management for zero emissions vessels.
1: So, you, Future Proof owns and and operates uh, zero emissions vessels and also helps others kind of learn how to do the same.
2: Exactly, yes.
1: And your role, what do you do there?
2: I'm the director of corporate strategy. For us, that essentially means Maintaining a strategic overview of alternative fuels that are viable for the industry, zero emissions technology markets, and assessing innovative technologies on their commercial, technical, operational, and financial viability to enable holistic decision making on the choice of technology and solution to build a zero emissions vessel.
1: Well, it's a very heady, very interesting space that you're working in. I have a lot more questions about what you're up to now, but first I want to connect the dots. How did you come to join Future Proof? What are the parts of your background and and interests that led you to this moment?
2: Uh, Well, I began my career in core design and product development in the apparel retail industry in India. I helped set up an entrepreneurial venture for a high-end apparel retailer. And along the way, I realized that I wanted to work in sustainability because that was really where my heart was. I moved to the Netherlands to do an MBA, which had a focus on sustainability at the Rotterdam School of Management, after which I did a couple of internships at energy companies and then went to work for a Dutch innovation and venture studio, where also the early research work for future proof shipping was done, along with our founder. And I was on the team that did the research. And when our founder decided to set up Future Proof Shipping as a standalone company, I moved to work at the company. And I am very grateful to have been given the opportunity.
1: So Future Proof spun out of a, um, what did you call it, a venture firm?
2: Yeah, like they did the initial research. Uh Our founder basically set up the project along with them because he wanted to find something that was sustainable, and that could really set an example of doing something in the shipping industry that was ambitious and really focused on zero emissions and not something that was a transitional solution. Yeah. And the initial research was done at this venture studio. And after that, the Future proof Shipping was set up as a standalone company after there was some sufficient research on potential pathways to take.
1: Yeah. So your your work, the whole company and the founding team, it's all very oriented around sustainability and that is very central to the mission of what you do and the starting story. And what drew you there?
2: Oh well, I've been passionate about sustainability right from like my early career. And for me it is really about not improving things or making things slightly better, but the ambitious goal of ushering in a zero emissions shipping world that drew me to the company and the cause, let's say. Yeah. We're really looking at pushing the envelope and not making incremental changes, but fundamental changes.
1: It's a very ambitious company. And I understand that Future Group Proof's first zero emissions vessel will be setting sail this year. So that's very exciting. How does it feel?
2: Well, it's a very intense and exciting time for us. Our technical team is right now working around the clock to complete the detailed design engineering and the final leg of the regulatory approval process. The retrofit is currently planned for uh, Q3 of 2021. So right now the vessel is, it has an internal combustion engine and it's running on MGO, which is marine gas oil. Mm. During the retrofit, we will remove the internal combustion engine and put in fuel cells, batteries, compressed hydrogen storage, and an electromotor. So after that, the operations will be fully zero emissions.
1: I want to dig into a little bit more about how does a new kind of ship like this come into existence? I have to assume it's more expensive to build. The retrofit is more expensive than running on the old fuel. And I would also just guess that the fuel is more expensive. Is that true? And like, who's footing the bill for the additional expenses and why?
2: Yes, it is expensive when compared to a diesel vessel at the moment, mostly because given the scale at which uh, zero emissions technology like fuel cells are manufactured, doesn't allow at this moment the industry to, let's say, tap into the advantages of manufacturing at scale. And the same is with uh, hydrogen when it's being used as a fuel. But when... The production of both the technology and hydrogen scales, we expect the cost to come down significantly, as you have seen the cost of solar panels or other renewable energy technologies, for example. Mm -hmm. On the funding, our shareholders have invested a significant amount of patient capital because they're keen on seeing impact and not just return on investment. Mm. We have been granted funding through European innovation programs and have also received Dutch subsidies to help us on this project.
1: So national level and EU level subsidies, it sounds like.
2: Yes. Yes, both. Okay. And there is also a premium that would be paid by the cargo owners who would be contracting the vessel to help us close the business case.
1: And do they have some particular motive to pay an extra for the greener services, or is it just the intrinsic motivation?
2: Well, they are a company with very ambitious sustainability targets. And for them, it's important to make also the emissions on their distribution channel uh, zero. So it's basically a very forward-thinking project. And as they have a concrete targets, this is something that will help them along that path. And they also would like to eventually decarbonize their entire operations. And then distribution and transportation tends to fit into most global supply chains. So it's an essential thing that needs to be decarbonized.
1: Yeah, so the customer of the cargo services has an existing decarbonization plan or mandate or something, and they're trying to hit that. And so contracting from future proof helps them do that. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that called pledge compliance, since it's not exactly like a legal compliance thing. Is there a term for like that kind of customer motive?
2: Uh, Actually, Pledge Compliance is the first I've heard of this, so thank you for that. Oh. But no, we've mostly seen that the companies that are most forward-thinking on their sustainability targets are the ones that have, let's say, quantified it and have made commitments on a company level. Yeah. And they're not just vague... Promises to themselves, let's say, where they say, okay, we would like to reduce emissions, but then there are more, we would like to decarbonize by X percent. Yeah. And this should include our operations. So we see a distinct difference between people that have concrete targets versus more vague or things that are still being shaped.
1: Right. And was this, did you already know about the customers for the low carbon cargo Services, Did you already know about those customers when you were initiating this project? Or did you have all that lined up before everything started moving? Or was it more of a leap of faith where you just believed that the customers would be there and the future proof initiated the project before you really knew who the customer would be?
2: It was a bit of both. We started doing our research to understand where really there would be a market for this. Because when we started the research, it was also quite broad based where we looked into social and environmental aspects and what really could be done in the shipping industry that was really ahead of the game. And when we settled on environmental aspects, we also tried to understand what does the stakeholder map look like and what's happening and where is there scope to actually close a business case for something like this? We spoke to several people, and over the last couple of years, we've learned that it is easier to get into a conversation and move towards a concrete outcome with uh, companies that have very significant targets and more concrete targets, as opposed to, like I mentioned earlier, concrete targets that are in development. So for us, it was a learning process. And then Mm. when somebody that is looking for something like this, also hears about the possibilities, they tend to move faster. Yeah. So it is, let's say, coming from both sides.
1: Yeah, and so you mentioned that there were a lot of different pieces of the business case, that there was national and and EU level grants, that there was a lot of equity investment in the project, and that, of course, the customer paid an increased price for the greener services. I don't know how easy this is to communicate in this medium, you know, with the time that we have, but like, can you give us any sense of like how different is this from financing a normal project? Like were the grants a kind of small and insignificant piece and the increase in price was really the biggest contributor to the different finances? Or how big were these different parts of the business case?
2: So it is financed in such a way that being patient capital. Reduces the amount we have to spend, and so do the subsidies that come in. Mm-hmm. But uh, fuel is also like a significant part of this, and the premium covers a lot of the cost that is related to the new fuel. While the patient capital is mostly helps reduce the cost of capital, as well as the subsidies help reduce the capex itself.
1: Yeah, okay, okay. Thank you. That clarifies what I was trying to learn about. Wow, very cool. And you mentioned fuels. I wanted to get into that. Can you tell us a little bit about how hydrogen infrastructure connects to this project? So you're using a new kind of fuel. Mm-hmm. How is this ship fueled? And, and how do you develop the infrastructure required to support ships like your new vessel?
2: So infrastructure is definitely key to changing the fuel. And in shipping, I think to fully decarbonize shipping, it's estimated that over 80% of the investment required would actually be in the land based supply infrastructure. Oh, wow. This is for the global shipping industry.
1: So you're saying 80% land based infrastructure, 20% like retrofitting the ships. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. I didn't know the ratio was like that. Oh, wow.
2: And if you take the example of the mass, which is our inland vessel, we will be using compressed hydrogen containers on board. And as there is no, let's say, refueling infrastructure available at terminals right now, what we will be doing is swapping containers. So when we're at the terminal, we will take out empty hydrogen containers and replace them with full ones. And the containers are then taken to a nearby hydrogen production location where they're refilled and brought back to the terminal.
1: And these are standard-sized containers that are loaded and unloaded and using the same container infrastructure?
2: They're standard-sized, but they're specialized because they are essentially a frame containing tubes of hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And they're especially reinforced and certified for us to be able to move them on the road as well as put them on the vessel and to be viable for the operations themselves.
1: Wow. That's a very cool way to solve the fueling problem. And uh, I'm sure I could spend a whole podcast episode nerding out about the details of that. But I guess we better not spend a whole podcast episode talking about the fueling details. But I did want to ask more about the fueling. You mentioned that you're using high-pressure gaseous hydrogen. Mm -hmm. When it comes to alternative marine fuels, I've also seen pilot vessels powered by Liquid hydrogen, or by ammonia, or by batteries, or biofuels, and on and on. You know, there's a lot of alternative marine fuels, and it's kind of dizzying. Of course, the uh, infrastructure challenges get multiplied by however many alternative fuels there are. So, I want to ask do you see any emerging winners or losers, or are we in an experimentation phase, or is it sort of like there's a niche for everything?
2: Shipping is actually likely to have a multi fuel future because there are so many different kinds of vessels that perform so many different kinds of operations. So it is quite likely that different fuels and technologies would be suitable or be the best options for different segments of the market. For example, if you consider ferries operating on very short distances within cities, they might easily be able to operate only on batteries. We have uh, battery ferries here in Amsterdam and inland ships, could very well work on compressed hydrogen. Like we have our inland vessel that would be retrofitted that will go from Rotterdam to Belgium. And once there are longer routes where typically the energy need is higher and maybe there are not many stops, you would probably need liquid hydrogen or hydrogen that is compressed to a higher pressure for our vessel. Now we're looking at 300 bar Mm -hmm. and for Future-proof shipping in general, when we say zero emissions, we mean zero greenhouse gas emissions end-to-end. So that's including uh, NOx emissions, carbon dioxide, et cetera. So we typically do not look at combustion engine-based solutions, and we believe electrification is the key because having an electric drivetrain allows for flexibility in the use of different energy providers where you use batteries or fuel cells in combination with hydrogen, etc. Hmm.
1: And do you see that being true also for ocean-going vessels, uh, zero emissions, no combustion processes? I've seen a lot of ammonia combustion or other pilot vessels that have some lower level but still non-zero emissions.
2: Uh, well, I think even there for different trades, it might be possible that different solutions are picked up it depends a bit on how technology goes in the coming years Hmm. but in case of combustion engines there are always some emissions so they're not really zero emission technologies right and then you would have to have end of pipe solutions to clean up whatever emissions there are which may not be the most ideal solution for the long term Yeah. So it's my personal opinion that even if there were combustion solutions, they would be viable only for a short term when the regulations come into play and people start considering the longevity of their assets because uh, ships are built for 20, 25 years, the ocean going ones the inland ships for much longer, sometimes 50, 60 years. So you don't want to have a combustion engine vessel for such a long yeah. period.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I need to take a break here and just uh, plug the uh, hydrogen class that I've been working on with Terra. So, for any of our listeners who are specifically interested in the role of hydrogen and in the energy transition in marine and other sectors, I highly encourage you to check out Terra's class on this topic. It's called The New Hydrogen Economy, and it starts on January 25. And you can read more, just go to terra.do, and I'd love to see you in the classroom. It's a, it's a really fun class. But I want to zoom out and ask more broadly about decarbonizing ships. How is that going compared to other sectors?
2: Well, shipping is a large and complex industry. So it's also difficult to decarbonize. And like I mentioned earlier, there are many different kinds of vessels carrying out different kinds of trades, operating on different routes. So there have been a lot of efforts in terms of testing new technologies, but they have also been slow. There are some reasons for that that are quite inherent to the industry in that commercial shipping is a low-margin business, where a lot of the incentives for installing expensive new technologies on board do not go directly to vessel owners, because then the vessel becomes expensive and it becomes less competitive in the market, meaning you find it harder to charter that vessel. And then it's also like change in the shipping industry would come much faster when it is driven by cargo owners or shippers and paying customers because they can incentivize zero emissions vessels through different mechanisms, such as maybe paying premiums or offering long-term contracts if they meet sustainability criteria, et cetera, because then they could pass on whatever extra cost that they incur to their end customers. Because when you consider the cost of maybe shipping a bottle of wine or a pair of shoes without emissions on an inland route within Europe, it would be just a couple of cents. Right. And if somebody added two or three cents or to a product you were buying, you wouldn't really notice it.
1: Right. That's so interesting. It sounds like kind of a complicated equation, but ultimately, if the cargo with maybe a little bit more green interest from the people who are purchasing the cargo services, mm-hmm. their change could happen a lot quicker. From what you're saying, it sounds like a big part of the problem is that the people who are commissioning the ships are responding to a marketplace where green services are not highly valued yet.
2: Yes, because once people start looking at sustainability or Uh, green vessels as an important criteria to make a decision on which vessel they would choose to ship their cargo on, things will start looking very different. Because right now, the typical mindset is to choose the cheapest vessel. Yeah. And if you look at maybe KPIs of people that are sourcing transport for very large companies might be to reduce the cost of their logistics operations. But Ultimately that will not push change in the direction of really sustainable shipping because you would consistently then have to compete with the vessel that's providing this service at the lowest cost, which would be burning probably the dirtiest fuel.
1: Wow. Well, switching tax a little bit, I wanna ask about policy and, and where policy fits in. Policy supports have been a part of the the founding of Future Proof. And I wanted to ask about the future of policy's role in your sector. So both Europe's COVID green recovery stimulus and Joe Biden's clean energy plan, they both include a focus on producing hydrogen with renewable energy. And I wanted to ask, how do these current events connect to your work and the future of zero emissions vessels in your sector?
2: Well, the more focus there is politically on decarbonization in general, the more focus there will be on decarbonizing the shipping industry. In the European Green Deal now, there is a lot of focus on this, and several countries have made uh, carbon neutrality commitments by different years, but that essentially makes this a very attractive place to be working on zero emissions ship technologies in general. But that said, concrete and ambitious targets are necessary to enable change to happen quickly. Because the minute we set ambitious targets and the focus shifts from having transitional solutions and spending energy and money on them to really moving to solutions that are really the end goal where you decarbonize significantly and go to zero emissions and not cut emissions by a few percent. Mm. So that is something that will really make the industry move faster. And then established rules, codes, and standards for zero emissions, fuels, and technologies can help de-risk them and enable projects to become bankable, meaning ship owners that want to implement these technologies have much wider and easier access to capital than at present.
1: Yeah, it's so energizing to hear you talk about what's possible in the world of policy and, and maybe this is even similar to how politicians or some politicians are talking in the eu here in the u.s it feels like we are five steps behind all that if we're as grateful as i am for joe biden getting elected and a democratic majority in the senate you know even some democratic senators are saying things like shying away from setting numeric targets for green electricity on the grid, you know, like kind of relatively easy stuff. Mm -hmm. But what you're saying just sounds both possible and kind of within reach. And it's just gonna add a few cents to each bottle of wine. Like that sounds doable.
2: Yes, it is. A lot of it has to do with perspective. Yeah. And what you're comparing it to. And we cannot compare it to the status quo that hasn't changed in the last hundred years.
1: Yeah, it's a transition. It's gonna be a a big shift but we can kind of do it whenever we want okay last question for you and we'll end it on a bit of a different note our listeners are passionate about climate and looking for ways to get more involved you've got the soapbox for a moment here what is your call to action for our listeners
2: i would suggest maybe start with small things in general repair reuse recycle consume responsibly, try to be aware of what you're buying and what you're paying for. And then in terms of more career opportunities, I think this is a space where there is a need for people with all kinds of skill sets. If you're an engineer, can you think of a better way to solve a problem related to a technology or optimizing something and improving it? If you're a marketer, can you help climate positive companies and initiatives tell their story better? So try to find a space or industry that excites you and think about how you can make a difference there with your unique skill set and perspective.
1: Yeah, there's really a role for everybody. Well, Prasanna, I just really enjoyed talking with you today. And thank you very much for your time and for sharing what you're working on and sharing your knowledge with us. I really appreciate
0: it.
2: Of course, you're welcome. Glad to be here.